Wind in Stanley Park, an interview with Wolf Reed about windstorms in BC's Lower Mainland. And I talked to Joanna Dean about Chess, the Canadian History and Environment Summer School. I'm Sean Courage, and this is Episode 5 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Networking Canadian History and Environment. Toward the end of 2007, I wrote an article for the Canadian Historical Review about the storm history of Vancouver's Stanley Park, focusing on two extreme weather events in 1934 and 1962, uh, which blew down thousands of trees in the city's beloved park. In that article, I argued that park board reforestation policies combined with public expectations of idealized wilderness and resulted in a collective popular amnesia regarding the regularity of wind in the park's history. Prior to the storm in 1962, known as Typhoon or Hurricane Frida, Stanley Park had been struck by 19 separate known windstorms between 1900 and 1960. When the park was hit again by a major windstorm in December 2006, more than 10,000 trees fell, changing the landscape of the city's landmark urban park. This research brought me into contact with Wolf Reed, a graduate student in the Department of Forest Sciences at UBC who studies wind. In particular, uh, Wolf has been looking at the numerous factors that shape the wind environment of BC's lower mainland and why some big storms result in massive blowdowns in Stanley Park and others don't. To find out more, I spoke with Wolf. I'm... uh Wolf Reed in the Department of Forest Science at the University of British Columbia. I am in a PhD program with Dr. Steve Mitchell. Well, thanks for joining me, Wolf. Um, What are the broader historical patterns of windstorms in the Lower Mainland? And how was Typhoon or Hurricane Frida in 1962 different from other storms in this region? All right, that's... uh, that's a big question. It's, <laughs> it's very involved. I'm going to try to uh, uh, summarize it as best I can here. Um, it, it may it may be more relevant to ask how did Typhoon Frida, or how was Typhoon Frida similar mm. to the other events? Because it was definitely a uh, extra tropical, or what some would call a mid latitude cyclone. Uh, a traditional wave cyclone. Uh, it differs largely from a hurricane or a true typhoon in not having a warm core. And that's usually, uh, when they talk about warm core, they're usually talking about middle and upper atmosphere as opposed to the surface. But the, the, the mid-latitude cyclones have a cold core. As there's upper, in the upper air, there's a lot of cold air involved. And also there's the surface cold air coming in on your, your frontal boundaries, which is, you know, contributing to the instability that allows, uh, uh, I shouldn't say allows, but it contributes to the instability of the storm system in general. Right. Um, the, the interesting fact is that Typhoon Frida followed somewhat of a normal pattern of development. It was it was an explosive cyclogenesis process, as it's called it. It was a rapidly deepening low. 
an interesting fact about it was that it entrained the remnants of Typhoon Frida. Right, which is where it gets its name. Yeah, and that's how it's yeah, it's how it's got its name. And <coughs> the extra the, the 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 tropical moisture has a tendency to really energize these mid latitude storms, and uh, we've seen this periodically uh, through history. Uh, and October, which is the time frame of Typhoon Frida, is a good month for getting lots of uh, degrading typhoons in training into the mid-latitude region mm -hmm. and, and getting in incorporated into these developing lows. And th this is what happened in October 62. The, the low, the cyclone itself, as I said, was, was r rapidly deep in it. And it's probably uh, among the fastest deepening lows in our history. I, I don't there's there's been some other cases where things right. have actually developed even more quickly. But this was a it was a big low, it was a huge system. It was it was a primary system. Uh which is different from say a secondary which would be a secondary low spinning up in the base of a bigger low. So this, this was a massive storm system and and training a lot of moisture, tropical moisture. And it uh, uh developed some pretty uh so I should say very extreme wind speeds, it, it, and with the few ship reports that were available as this thing was developing far offshore, right. it, it, the storm got deep enough, quickly enough, and the spe wind speeds got fast enough that a lot of meteorologists were discounting those reports as being real. They were they were thinking they were erroneous, mm -hmm. when in fact they weren't. Mm -hmm. they, they they were real. So this is materializing over a very short period of time. Yeah, and 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 a key and it. <coughs> And I and I think this is key in understanding the uh, Typhoon Frida is that this system was uh, moving at a much more rapid speed than is typical of these large mid-latitude cyclones. Uh, uh, so some similar events, say uh, uh, November fourteenth, nineteen eighty-one, and January sixteenth, two thousand. Those lows were moving at maybe you know, between 30 and 40 miles an hour. Right. Okay, the Columbus Day storm was moving at rates between 50 and 60 miles an hour. So this is the entire system, this huge mass, spinning mass of air, just moving at 50 to 60 miles an hour. Right. And I believe that that momentum alone was contributed significantly to the kinds of wind speeds we were seeing. It's, it's built, because when you look at the Columbus Day storm, which is another name for Typhoon Frida. Right. O overall, you know, the central pressure got down to 960 millibars. We've had a number of storms also achieve that and even exceed that mm -hmm. without producing the same kind of wind speeds that the Columbus Day Storm did. The surface pressure gradients, which is your difference in pressure between, say, two locations, uh, you know, horizontally, got pretty extreme in the Columbus Day Storm, but again, they did not reach unusual levels. And, and it's your pressure gradients that, are lar that largely determine wind speeds. It's that differential pressure. Right. And the steeper the gradient, generally the faster the winds. And, and in a, s a simple rule would be every time you double the gradient, you're doubling the wind speed. Mm -hmm. The Columbus Day Storm did have steep gradients, but the, they were not unusual, say, compared to November 81, you know, or, or some other storms in the last 50 years. Right. But it's that forward momentum of the entire storm track. Of the entire storm combined with these steep gradients. And on top of that, 
Well, one other factor is that the Columbus Day storm went into its explosive deepening phase, you know, as it was tracking up the coast, and it reached peak intensity probably somewhere just off the coast of Astoria, Oregon. Right. A lot of these, a lot of our classic windstorms are actually more mature lows. They're they're a little less intense when you mm-hmm. when you get these rapidly deepening systems are reaching peak intensity. Yeah. It, it favors your higher wind speeds, it largely, I, th- I believe, due to enhanced instability, vertical. Mm-hmm. You have a greater pro- chance of mixing down, you know, mid-level m- momentum. Is this why Oregon feels the greatest impact from this <coughs> storm in 62? Exactly. Uh, y- Oregon was definitely ground zero, I, I would say, from about Brookings up to just past Astoria into southwest Washington. Right. Uh, and this is where the low was you know, reaching and, and at peak intensity. How did uh, wind direction compare in this 62 storm compared to other wind storms in the lower mainland? Okay, yeah, the, this, is, this, is where, uh, this is where the lower mainland, especially Vancouver, you know, Metro Vancouver, right. has a bit of a unique characteristic uh, relative to other stations in the region. I mean, even Abbotsford, Bellingham, uh, they they differ a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metro Vancouver, uh, a typical high wind storm would actually come out of the west or west northwest. Uh, that'd be your wind directions. Right. And it, at the other stations in the interior regions, um, it's more typical out of the south southeast to south southwest. So you call it we just call it in general a southerly storm. Yeah. Though Metro Vancouver does get the occasional southerly storm, more often than not, the big events are out of the west-northwest. And, and and these are storms that may not impact other parts of the region that strongly. You could, you could have, you know, trees falling in Stanley Park in a westerly gale mm-hmm. with Bellingham hardly registering a breeze. Right. And And, and, and it's largely due to the the geographic location of Metro Vancouver r- with respect to the, the Strait of Georgia. Mm-hmm. These, these winds, you know, once the pressure gradient set upright, these winds can surge down the strait and they hit Metro Vancouver virtually unimpeded. And We're is that the general wind direction of storms that hit Stanley Park and, and uh, downtown Vancouver in 2006? Exactly, yes. Now, the 2006, there's some unique aspects I will add, that's a good question, um, that, the, you know, the, the Typhoon Frida was a southerly type event for right. Vancouver, wh- which also marks it as somewhat unusual. Right. Because not only was Typhoon a southerly event, but it still has the highest gust at the Vancouver International Airport from 1962 to present. Mm-hmm. And, and southerly events are not favored at the Vancouver National Airport because the winds are coming off the land. Uh, in fact, these southerly events are usually more southeasterly in the Vancouver area, whereas the westerly winds are coming right off the water, and so, so they're favored for higher speeds. And the, and the fact that a Columbus Day storm produced the highest gusts in 62 out of the southeast is, is, is pretty significant. Some more recent storms that had a southeasterly direction and it also impacted Stanley Park, would be March 30th, 1997. 
That was probably one of the more significant southeasterly events in the last 20 years. And then just before the big December 15th blowdown in 2006, mm -hmm. there was a southeasterly windstorm on December 11th, which uh, though didn't, you know, attain extreme velocities, they were strong enough to actually have knocked trees down in Stanley Park. Right. Causing some problems. But just not anything as unusual as December 15th, 2006. So how does your research on windstorms that you're currently doing, uh, your doctoral research, uh, relate to Stanley Park? What is it that you're looking at? Uh, I'm looking at uh, <coughs> I'm looking at two things, really. I know what I'm looking to understand the, the climatology of windstorms in the region in depth. And it's, it's actually largely tied in with uh, trying to establish high wind recurrence levels, uh, what, what directions they will come from. There's, there's some interest from BC Hydro and the BC Transmission Corporation in terms of protecting their the, the power infrastructure right. from these events. Right. And <coughs> the other aspect, and, and what interests me about Stanley Park especially, is that there's, there's an aspect of these windstorms, they, they can be fickle. And uh, as I described, where you could have a damaging gale in Stanley Park and not much going on in Bellingham, mm -hmm. is to look at how uh, these 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 large, what you call synoptic scale storms, these big big storms, how, mm -hmm. how they affect winds locally. What kind of uh, variation in wind speeds can you get over small spatial scales? You know, they, some of the questions I'm asking are, you know, is Vancouver International Airport or the station here at University of British Columbia or Atkinson Point Lighthouse, are those good proxies for wind speeds, say, in Stanley Park mm -hmm. or you know, some other location in Metro Vancouver that does not have an official recording station? What are some local factors that might uh, result in such uh, small-scale regional variability in wind speed and direction? Well, yeah, the, the, the obvious ones would be uh, you know, geography. Right. So, uh, what terrain features might be either enhancing or reducing wind speeds? You know, that'd be mountain ranges, even low hills can have a significant effect. Right. Um, the 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 other question is: Are there atmospheric situations that support very local high winds? You know, could could say could say a hundred and 20 kilometer gust hit Stanley Park with uh, UBC only experiencing say a max of 80 right. you know and, and, and is, th is that a atmospheric you know phenomenon or is that related to some kind of geography you know there's, there's are these two f variables interacting to cause these kind of things now um, have you found evidence of comparable storms that have different impacts on the park I have found some interesting, uh, some, some interesting data recently. I uh, I took a look at uh, there. There was a big windstorm in Metro Vancouver on on December fourteenth, two thousand one, mm -hmm. and I've been comparing that event and the in the uh, climate conditions for two months ahead of that event to what was going on in December of '06. The big, big storm the big blowdown. Park in 06. And so what, I'd, what I've done is I've looked at uh, 
Vancouver International Airport and I'm comparing it to the uh, Point Atkinson Lighthouse Station. And w one of the more interesting, uh, there, there's, there's two interesting events that occurred. Uh, what, what I've been trying to do is categorize all significant wind events that happened in the months leading up to the big event, the big storms, mm -hmm. December 01 and December 06. Mm -hmm. And on, uh, on, on October 23rd, 2001, there was a westerly windstorm in Metro Vancouver. This was the first big wind event of the year, of the, of the season. And at the Vancouver International Airport, the maximum wind speed was uh, 48 kilometers an hour. We're at the Atkinson Point. Yeah. It reached 80. And, and I dug in, I, I did some uh, newspaper research on that. And uh, Stanley Park lost at least 25 large trees that day. And there was also like a photograph of a of a light standard in downtown Vancouver that was blown over. Right. So it looks like these 80 kilometer winds definitely went from Atkinson Point, reached the park, and also hit parts of downtown Vancouver, where the airport 48 kilometers an hour is fairly strong. Mm -hmm. You can even have some small trees, weak trees break, branches certainly. Yeah. But. Uh, you know, 80 kilometers an hour is a substantial difference. It's, it's almost a factor of four in terms of wind force right. difference. And so, so that was an interesting, one of the interesting events that, that shows that these, these things can be very focused. Yeah. And so, and so the, you know, the, 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 one of the questions being asked here is in December 2006, maybe the wind speeds at Stanley Park were substantially higher than what was me measured either at the University of British Columbia or right. a Vancouver National Airport. Right. That's one of the questions I'm asking. What's, what's also interesting is you can get uh, reverse situations. There was a storm that was part of the sequence of events leading up to the, the December 06 blowdown. It was, it was on 13 November 2006. Just about a month before. Yeah, a month before. Yeah. And, and, and it, was, uh, it was another westerly, and it hit the airport at about 52 kilometers an hour. Mm -hmm. You know, decent decent blow. And at the uh, Atkinson Point Lighthouse, their maximum wind velocity out of the westerly direction was just six kilometers an hour. Substantially different. Yeah, yeah. that's a huge difference. So yeah. th and, and so, you know, I, I haven't looked into these situations in depth to, you know, try to address, uh, especially this one where Atkinson Point only has six kilometers an hour. You know, it w the question is, what's going on there? Mm -hmm. Because that the lighthouse station is pretty well exposed to westerly winds. And so these mm -hmm. local winds are complicating what kind of records we can use to understand the impact of windstorms on Stanley Park. Yes. yes. What are what are some biological factors that contribute to uh, wind throw in the forests of the park? Oh, there there are many. Uh, and uh, this is where it gets really complicated. Wh the, the phenomenon of wind throw itself is very, very complicated. Mm -hmm. Involves many different variables, and it, it makes it, it, it it's 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 complicated and interwoven enough that you cannot actually use wind throw as an inference for absolute wind speed, mm -hmm. and nor can you use absolute wind speed to try to predict wind throw. So if you had an absolute wind speed measure, mm -hmm. 
and 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 part of this is because there's factors like tree height you know the higher the tree the better the lever right that the wind force has to act on so the taller the tree actually the more susceptible to falling it is right that's that's one example uh, another one is is pathogens there's there's things like laminated root rot which can weaken the tree's foothold on the ground lots of trees experience heartwood various forms of heartwood rots right which can weaken the bowl and and these are hard to you know to to account for in any kind of a pre-existing conditions before the storm itself yeah exactly okay. and, and and a key one that's kind of that it's kind of both biological and and physical is the whole aspect of you know soil saturation too which seems to be paid attention to you know and, uh, you know the december 15th windstorm of 2006 you know that was preceded by a lot of moisture mm-hmm. and when soil gets saturated it loses cohesion and the tree's roots are not able to hang on as well and so they're more susceptible to uprooting and a lot of the trees in stanley park did uproot right as, as an example uh, so that's, that's just another another uh, variable on top of all these other ones that contribute to the whole now to throw another variable into the mix are there are there uh, human factors that uh, exacerbate or contribute to wind throw as another one of these factors on top of wind speeds, soil saturation, pathogens, tree height. Yeah, the the human factors are uh, can be interesting. Uh, probably the most significant maybe in in reference to the park would be the development of roads. Right. Because those 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 create an opening. And anytime you create an opening, there's a greater potential that the wind can sort of dig in when it's blowing over the canopy, could dig in and hit the trees more broadside. Uh. And trees are more susceptible, you know, with a direct attack like that from the broadside. Now, of course, a lot of roads, I believe the general rule of thumb is that the trees are an effect of wind blocks. Okay, this mm-hmm. starts getting a little involved, but they're an effective wind blo- block about three to five tree heights downrange. So it takes wind about three to five tree heights past, say, a, so you have a group of trees. And there's open fields around it. So three to five tree heights down rain, downwind of that group of trees, your winds are, you know, attaining their, uh, you know, typical velocity, you know, velocity yeah. that would be measured, say, you know, say 10 meters above the treetops over the woodlot. You know, now it's, you know, 10 meters above the ground level, you know, three to five tree heights down range. Now, so these roads, like in Stanley Park, yeah. they're not that wide. Yeah. So the the winds are not getting a full direct attack, but they can still there can still be some turbulence that can have some impact. And if the winds are coming from the right direction, mm-hmm. like down you know like straight down the road, then yeah, it can dig in, you can get momentum digging in. And if the road turns, then that wind's going to be hitting those trees on yeah. the bend directly. Now after the '62 storm the park board uh, engaged in, in reforesting the park and replanting new trees to replace the ones that had been destroyed in 1962. Did the replanting efforts act as a factor uh, uh, in wind throw in future storms following 1962? It can be a factor, uh, mm-hmm. ma- mainly because what happens is you get this, you're developing this uniform stand. Uh, the trees are essentially nearly all the same age right 
and they have similar characteristics or they're young trees they're vigorous mm-hmm. you know the, so what happens is when if the wind reaches that critical threshold that starts breaking the trees it can essentially take down a large percentage of that stand because the trees are roughly uniform in characteristics so mm-hmm. it's like when one tree goes and all of a sudden you can have this cascading effect and we this is seen a lot in managed stands yeah uh the it's it's one of the uh you know it's, it's a well-known phenomenon uh, that uh, there, there's different ways of mitigating. So that's the other factor with the human factors in the park is some of this you can mitigate for. Mm-hmm. Um, you can try to grow mixed species. Uh, you could uh, you could try to reduce the amount of forest edge that's going to be hit by westerly winds or southerly winds, depending on what your interests are. Right. Uh, th- with Stanley Park, since it's not really a sort a managed force in the sense of being for for timber harvest right um the a lot of these things are not that big of a deal you you're more interested in that when you're making clear cuts which then exposes large areas of standing forest to to the wind right you get all this edge forest edge that wasn't there before right you know, so well, a lot of complicated factors go into all of this uh, I want to thank you for coming and speaking to us about uh wind and Stanley Park. And uh, we'll be excited to see what, uh, what you come up with with your research. All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's almost that time of year again, that time when Canadian environmental historians gather for summer school. The fourth annual Canadian History and Environment Summer School will be held in Ottawa, Ontario from May 22nd to the 24th. Professors Joanna Dean and Andrew Johnson from Carleton University's Department of History will be hosting this year's summer school, following up on previous successful events held in Toronto, Saskatoon, and Vancouver. What's happening at this year's summer school? I'm Joanna Dean. I teach environmental history and gender history at Carleton University. Thanks for joining us, Joanna. Uh, I wanted to ask you what the focus of this year's chess event will be. Well, because we're meeting in Ottawa, we decided to focus it on the state and and environmental history, which we've discovered leads us into all sorts of interesting directions. And this ties into the theme of this year's Canadian Historical Association meeting. It does, although that was sort of by accident. (laughs) Yeah, I guess they thought along the same lines that we did. Yeah. That's excellent. Um, What what kind of activities and events do you guys have planned? Um, Well, we're we're starting it off with a um, roundtable on the media. Um, Bob McDonald from Quirks and Quarks on CBC has kindly agreed to come, as has Rick Boychuk, who was the editor of Canadian Geographic. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be part of a panel on how environmental historians can learn to work with the media better, how we can get our work out to a wider public than we're reaching at the moment. Okay. And I think we're really lucky to have such two such important yeah. people in the Canadian yeah. um media to to work with us on this. So we're going to have an early morning workshop on Saturday morning and um, they'll be talking about their own work and their own experiences working with environmental historians and I'm hoping giving us some tips about how we can work with them better. Now everybody looks forward to the field trip events at the summer school. What kind of field trip events have you guys got planned? Oh we've got those planned too. Um, The first day we're going up to Gatineau Park 
um, we're going to spend some time in a ski lodge um, doing workshops and seminars and, and uh, then we're going to go to the Mackenzie King estate um, to look at Kingsmere and um, look a little bit at the way that Mackenzie King shaped Gatineau Park and the role he played in shaping a park that's not, it has this very strange, uh, Gatineau Park's very strange, it's not a national park although it's a federal park so we'll be talking a little bit about what led to that. And we're also planning a uh, field trip walking in the woods at Gatineau Park um, through we haven't chosen yet which historical site and the only the only thing uh, is that I've discovered that May is black fly season so we're <laughs> be taking a lot of mosquito repellent so maybe long sleeves <laughs> long sleeves and mosquito repellent are, are definitely advised um, and then on Sunday we're meeting at the Central Experimental Farm in a wonderful old sheep barn that was built I think in the 1920s as a model barn and it's it's a beautiful building and we'll be meeting there and going on walks around the Arboretum at the Experimental Farm and down to the canal and looking at how experimental farms were used to try to shape agriculture across Canada. Right. Well, I'm looking so forward to it. Um, as an organizer, what are your goals for this year's chess event and what do you hope that uh, participants will take out of the, uh, the two-day experience? I've been fortunate enough to have been to a couple of chesses in the past at, at Toronto and at UBC mm -hmm. and I'm hoping to build on the success there. From, w from what I've seen in the past, the most much as the workshops and the readings and the discussions are all very important and we're hoping we're bringing together a really interesting group of people with a really wide range of, of, of research backgrounds and interests. Important as that is, uh, my experience has always been the most important part of chess is that bus trip to the field trip, the dinner together, right. the drink you have afterwards, the coffee you have in the morning, all of that networking with um, environmental historians from across the country, both students and faculty. And so right. we're, we're hoping to do as much mixing it up and traveling around together and to make it the kind of informal and uh, interesting event that the other ones have been to achieve the same purpose. Well, I'm looking forward to this year's summer school. I'm sure it's going to be excellent. The field trips sound really interesting, and I think the theme uh, will uh, be a nice addition to the previous themes in the past at uh, uh, Toronto, Saskatoon, and Vancouver. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Wolf Reed, Joanna Dean, and me, Sean Karaj. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at nice.uwo.ca slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and now you can leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast or write a short review and rate our podcast on the iTunes page. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche.uwo.ca. But now you can follow Niche on Twitter at twitter.com slash niche underscore Canada. Thanks for listening and be sure to download our next episode.